part of our theology is that those ministries we do are not um, simply from only our own initiative, but that are things that we are drawn to because of how God speaks in our lives sometimes. Um, So we usually, in worship, we will most often celebrate a particular ministry or call or do a commissioning after the reading of the scripture, seeing that as a response to God's word in some way, but thinking about um, celebrating Kristen this morning and looking at our scripture readings, I was like, oh no, we can't do that. (laughs) Would you pray with me? God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So as some of you have heard, our worship planning team brainstormed a bunch of hard questions this spring, so we are exploring some of them in worship this summer. Today we talk about hell, an idea that some corners of Christianity might talk about prominently, but which we rarely make mention of. The question of hell brings up a number of big questions. What happens after we die? Does God punish sin and evil? What does it mean to be saved? Who gets saved and how? Our scripture readings for this morning are just two of many that speak to these questions. Lots of people believe that everybody goes someplace after we die and that you have two options, heaven or hell. Depending on your theology or belief system, you may believe that where you go is determined by what you have or have not done in your life. Or in the case of a certain stripe of Christianity, you may believe that where you go is determined by whether you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But there are some very different ways we might think about this question of hell. Today, I'm not primarily going to share my own thoughts on the subject with you. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to a story of personal and theological transformation as powerful as any I have heard. This is the story of Carlton Pearson. Carlton Pearson was a prominent protege of Oral Roberts. If you don't know who Oral Roberts was, Roberts was a charismatic Pentecostal preacher. Oral Roberts claimed to heal through touch, and he became one of the first televangelists. He founded Oral Roberts University. Oral Roberts was an enormous influence on conservative, evangelical, and Pentecostal Christianity, an influence which can still be felt, though Roberts died in 2009. His son, Richard, has taken over leadership of most of his ministries. Carlton Pearson was a young Pentecostal teen raised in the ghettos of San Diego. He attended Oral Roberts University, where he became one of the World Action Singers. Pearson developed a close personal relationship with Oral Roberts. When Pearson decided to leave the World Action Singers, Roberts called him into his office. He said to Carlton, We like you around here. 25% of my support is consistently black. I need a black son. Richard is my biological son. He has the indispensable name of Roberts. But you are my black son, and I need you by my side. Carlton Pearson quickly became an evangelical megastar, 
In 1981, he started a church called Higher Dimensions with his roommate from Oral Roberts University. Pearson traveled with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and visited the White House under both Bushes and Clinton. He got his own TV show on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Now, I want you to listen to a piece of Carlton Pearson's story in his own words. And attendance at Carlton's own church continued to grow. Higher Dimensions added new seats, a balcony, and bought state-of-the-art audio and video recording equipment. I used to worry that it would ever be filled. We could seat about 1,200 and it was full. Then we put the balconies in, another 800 seats. We're running about 2,200 per service, 5,000 on a Sunday. And every person in my position wonders each week, will they come back? And after a few years of driving up here and there's police directing traffic and parking attendants and crowds and security meets my car and I go in my garage. And one day it dawned on me and I said, I guess this is the way it's going to be. We're there. So here he is at the top of his game. It's late 1990s, but something didn't feel right. Carlton had always preached a pretty conventional evangelical theology. Hell was a horrible place, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for eternity, and the only way to avoid it was to accept Jesus. But he was always reading and studying the Bible's origins, boning up on the original Hebrew and Greek, and he'd begun to doubt some of the stuff he'd been preaching. And it all came to a head one evening in front of the television. When my little girl, who will be nine next month, was an infant, I was watching the, the evening news, the, the Hutus and Tutsus were returning from Rwanda to Uganda. And and uh, Peter Jennings was doing a piece on it. Now Majesty was in my lap, my little girl. I'm eating the meal, and I'm watching these little kids with swollen bellies. And it looks like their skin is stretched across their little skeletal remains. Their hair is kind of red from malnutrition. The babies are, they've got flies in the corners of their eyes and of their mouths. And they reach for their mother's breast. And the mother's breast looks like a little pencil hanging there. I mean, the baby's reaching for the breast. There's no milk. And I, my little fat-faced baby and a plate of food and a big screen television. And I said, God, I don't know how you can call yourself a loving, sovereign God. And allow these people to suffer this way and just suck them right into hell. Which is what was my assumption. And I heard a voice say within me, so that's what you think we're doing? And I remember I didn't say yes or no. I said, that's what I've been taught. We're sucking them into hell. I said, yes. And what would change that? Well, they need to get saved. And how would that happen? Well, somebody needs to preach the gospel to them and get them saved. So... If you think that's the only way they're going to get saved is for somebody to preach the gospel to them and that we're sucking them into hell, why don't you put your little baby down, turn your big screen television off, push your plate away, get on the first thing smoking, and go, go get them saved. Now, and I remember I, I broke in, into tears. I was very upset. I, I remember thinking, God, don't put that guilt on me. You know, I've given you the best 40 years of my life. Besides, I can't save the whole world. I'm doing the best I can. I can't save this whole world. And that's where I remember, and I, I believe it was God saying, precisely, you can't save this world. That's what we did. You think we're sucking them into hell? Can't you see they're already there? That, that's hell. 
you keep creating and inventing that for yourselves. I'm taking them into my presence. And I thought, well, I'll be. That's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's where the pain comes from. We do that to each other and we do it to ourselves. Then I saw emergency rooms, I saw divorce court, I saw jails and prisons, I saw how we create hell on this planet for each other. And I, for the first time in my life, I did not see God as the inventor of hell. Here's what makes me run. I'm, I'm sitting next to a, a, little th- a little Tibetan monk. He's been a Tibetan monk for the fourth generation. Here's a monk that all he does is every morning he takes the goats, he milks the goats, takes them to another pasture, he works in the garden, he says some prayers, he burns some incense, he's never married, he doesn't kill, cuss, fight, lie. He never heard the gospel, never seen a television or radio or a track, he lives way up there in the, in the cold. He's taking goats to one pasture, slips off a cliff, falls into a valley and dies. Is there a Jesus anywhere to receive that man? Or is the devil there sucking them all into hell? And I would say, no, no, no. My God loves you. way the God of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is presented, he's, he's, he's a monster. The God we've been preaching is a monster. He's worse than Saddam, he's worse than Osama bin Laden, he's worse than Hitler, the way we presented him. Because Hitler just burnt six million Jews, you know, but God's going to burn at least six billion people and, and burn them forever. It's this customized torture chamber called hell, where he's going to torment, torture not for a few minutes or a few days or a few hours or a few weeks, but forever. The more Carlton started to think about it, the further away from conventional teaching it led him. If there was no hell, then you didn't need to accept Jesus to avoid hell. And if you didn't need to accept Jesus, it didn't matter if you were a Christian. It didn't even matter if you came to church. Everyone in the world was saved, whether they knew it or not. And at first, Carlton didn't understand just how problematic this would be for pretty much everyone in his life. Remember, he had a 5,000-person congregation and eight pastors on staff, all of whom believed that hell was real, and the only way to avoid it was by being reborn in Christ, as they'd been told all their lives. So he had a series of meetings with his pastors, saying he wanted to rewrite the theology of the charismatic world. This turned out to be a pretty tough sell. They were asking me questions, and I uh, couldn't answer them to their satisfaction, neither to mine. I knew it spiritually, but I couldn't answer it theologically because the Bible clearly, I can take that Bible and denounce what I'm teaching. There is plenty of scriptures that say that salvation is limited to only those who confess Christ. The Bible clearly says that. Hell's enlarging its borders and that 
you know, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus said that. And he will separate the wheat, uh, the goat from the sheep. And um, Jesus makes several references to Gehenna, which is translated hell and fire and all that stuff. If you take it literally, Jesus preached hell the way King James translators translate it, which is inaccurate. <laughs> Jeff Foth was an associate pastor at the time. We would talk about his perception of, of Scripture, you know, and, and he had begun talking about just that Scripture had mistakes and errors. And so um, the, uh, the demeanor of the conversation um, would get heated at times because it was apparent that, that, that you know, we were on two different pages. Open to Matthew chapter 5. The average person, even preacher, that you approach and ask, where did we get the Bible? Most of them can't tell you that. Men sat around tables in rooms for weeks, drinking wine, eating and taking breaks, fussing and sometimes cussing arguing over what would be in the Bible and what would not. So I won't get into great detail, but I'm just saying that which we revere as the most sacred lexicon of truth on the planet is not necessarily, and any true scholar will tell you, infallible or inerrant. The Logos, the logic of God, not the letter, the letter For all the scripture that doesn't support Carlton's ideas, there are passages that do, like 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, which says that God is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Or there's this. 1 John chapter 2, My dear children, I write this to you so, so that you will not sin. My dear children, watch this, I write this to you that you don't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. His name is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Read on. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours. And not only for ours. But also for the sins of the whole world. But also... Look at me, babies. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. He started formalizing his thinking into an actual doctrine, what he calls the gospel of inclusion. Everyone's going to heaven. Atheists, Muslims, gays. Jesus died for them all. For people like Martin Brown, who'd been at Higher Dimension since it started in 1981, this was a pretty confusing switch. Here was their pastor, who married them, baptized them, counseled them, and advised them for decades, all of a sudden saying that the premise of their faith was wrong. It got to a point where, uh, and I remember the day my wife and I decided to leave, we were sitting in church, and I can't remember the particular scripture, but I remember the scripture said, faith in Christ. And he looked at the, he looked at the, uh, the congregation, and he said, that does not mean faith in Christ. It was, it was written in ink in black and white, and he looks us in the eye and says, that's not what it means. You know, I felt insulted by that. And you could, he could tell by the, 
by the looks on the on the members' faces that he had stepped into something, and so he said, "Wait a minute before you react, let me explain." And he gave an explanation for it, uh, which I didn't buy. And I think that was a time where we decided, okay, well, we need to we need to find another church that's solid in the word because this is not we don't believe what he's what he's telling us. Around this time, a lot of people were making this decision, and the congregation was shrinking. Word started getting out around town that something funny was going on with Bishop Pearson. His own pastors had reached a breaking point. Four of my pa- all white, my four pastors left here at once. And uh, almost all my white members, at least 85% of the white non-black members left when they left. It was just a mass exodus. And um, we're at this table. And uh, they came. I thought they were coming to tell me that they were recommitting themselves to me and to my wife. They had called a meeting for me and my wife to come. But I thought when they asked us, they were going to reaffirm, so we're going to pull together and make this thing happen. Pastor, we know you're going through a lot of criticism and a lot of judgment, and, and we just want you to know we got your back. That's what I was expecting. But they came totally different. They said we... Um, very calm. They just said, we just want to tell you that we love you. and that. Um, but we prayed together and we've talked and we've decided that we uh, are going to resign our positions and, and start our own church. And would you be offended if we started one close because we can't find a building far away. We could only find a building down here close. And of course, me being the Christian pacifist, I said, oh, I mean, I burst into tears. My wife did too. We were just crushed. I was just devastated that these guys were going to do this. It just totally caught me off guard. Those guys have had have had nothing to do with me since. They didn't ask me to come to any dedication. They've never ever asked me to speak there. They've never come to anything I've had. They don't even like for people to know they were here. Carlton Pearson was denounced in a barrage of negative publicity in evangelical publications for an entire year after he began preaching his gospel of inclusion. He was forced off the Board of Regents of Oral Roberts University and denounced by Richard Roberts. Even his own protégés denounced him, people like the now-famous T.D. Jakes, who got his start thanks to Carlton Pearson. Attendance at Pearson's church dropped from 5,000 to 200. The church's offerings dropped between thirty dollars and $50,000 each week. During this time, Carlton Pearson turned 50, with his life looking very different from what he'd expected. He said, I miss ORU. I miss being the celebrated preacher. I miss the people. I miss having thousands coming to worship. I miss having friends all over the country. I miss that whole world. It's all gone. I am not celebrated. It's like I died. They mourned, and they're over it. Carlton Pearson also says that if he'd known when he first started preaching the gospel of inclusion that it would cost him so much, he never would have opened his mouth. To the man he was then, the life he leads now would have been terrifying. As he says, consorting with sinners and gays. He says that God doesn't show you everything all at once for a reason. Now, that's what, now that what's done is done, there's no way he'd go back. 
a whole new world, albeit a more complicated world, has opened up to him, complete with new friendships and new support. The depth of Carlton Pearson's passion and his conviction about hearing God's speak to him are incredibly moving to me, not to mention the price he has paid. Carlton Pearson and I have taken very, very different paths to arrive at our beliefs about hell, but I believe something essentially like what Carlton Pearson believes, that we can trust God that we don't need to do anything to be saved, that we don't need to try to get other people saved. God's love extends to all the world, Christian or no. And when we move away from God in whatever way, God's desire is always to draw us close again. Hell is what we do to each other, but it is not a part of anything God does to anybody. May God guide our hearts to grow in understanding of God's grace and God's love. Amen.